3. Any stories conceal one of the earliest and greatest disasters of the city. It appears that Rome was really conquered by Porcina, and lost all the territory which the kings had gained on the right side of the Tiber. Hence we find the 30 tribes, established by Servius Tullius, reduced to 20 after the war with Porcina. Footnote 13, the dictator was an extraordinary magistrate appointed by one of the consuls in seasons of great peril. He possessed absolute power. 24 lictors attended him, bearing the axes in the fasces, even in the city, and from his decision there was no appeal. He could not hold the office longer than six months, and he usually laid it down much sooner. He appointed a magister ecitum, or master of the horse, who acted as his lieutenant, from the time of the appointment of the dictator. All the other magistrates, even the consuls, ceased to exercise any power. Chapter IV. From the Battle of the Lake Arigiaelius to the Dacianviaradii, B.C. 498-451. The history of Rome for the next 150 years consists internally of the struggles between the patricians and plebeians, and externally of the wars with the Etruscans, Volscians, Equians, and other tribes in the immediate neighborhood of Rome. The internal history of Rome during this period is one of great interest. The patricians and plebeians formed two distinct orders in the state. After the banishment of the kings the patricians retained exclusive possession of political power. The plebeians, it is true, could vote in the commissia centuriated, but, as they were mostly poor, they were outvoted by the patricians and their clients. The consuls and other magistrates were taken entirely from the patricians who also possessed the exclusive knowledge and administration of the law. In one word, the patricians were a ruling and the plebeians a subject class. But this was not all. The patricians formed not only a separate class, but a separate caste, not marrying with the plebeians, and worshipping the gods with different religious rites. If a patrician man married a plebeian wife, or a patrician woman a plebeian husband, the state refused to recognize the marriage, and the offspring was treated as illegitimate. The plebeians had to complain not only of political, but also of private wrongs. The law of debtor and creditor was very severe at Rome. If the borrower did not pay the money by the time agreed upon, his person was seized by the creditor, and he was obliged to work as a slave. Nay, in certain cases he might even be put to death by the creditor, and if there were more than one, his body might be cut in pieces and divided among them. The whole weight of the suppressive law fell upon the plebeians, and what rendered the case still harder was, that they were frequently compelled, through no fault of their own, to become borrowers. They were small landholders, living by cultivating the soil with their own hands, but as they had to serve in the army without pay, they had no means of engaging laborers in their absence. Hence, on their return home, they were left without the means of subsistence or of purchasing seed for the next crop and borrowing was their only resource. Another circumstance still farther aggravated the hardships of the plebeians. The state possessed a large quantity of land called Ager Publicus, or the public land. This land originally belonged to the kings, being set apart for their support, and it was constantly increased by conquest, as it was the practice on the subjugation of a people to deprive them of a certain portion of their land. This public land was let by the state subject to a rent, but as the patricians possessed the political power, they divided the public land among themselves, and paid for it only on nominal rent. Thus the plebeians, by whose blood and in paid toil much of this land had been won, were excluded from all participation in it. It was not to be expected that the plebeians would submit to such grievous injustice. The contest was twofold. It was a struggle of a subject against a ruling class, 
and of rich against poor, the plebeians strove to obtain an equal share not only in the political power, but also in the public land. The cruelty of the patrician creditors was the most pressing evil, and led to the first reform. In B.C. 494 the plebeians, after a campaign against the Volscians, instead of returning to Rome, retired to the sacred mount, a hill about two miles from the city, near the junction of the Arno and the Tiber. Here they determined to settle and found a new town, leaving Rome to the patricians and their clients. This event is known as the secession to the sacred mount. The patricians, alarmed, sent several of their number to persuade the plebeians to a return. Among the deputies was the aged Menenes Agrippa, who had great influence with the plebeians. He related to them the celebrated fable of the belly and the members. Once upon a time, he said, the members refused to work any longer for the belly, which led a lazy life, and grew fat upon their toils. But receiving no longer any nourishment from the belly, they soon began to pine away, and found that it was to the belly they owed their life and strength. The fable was understood and the plebeians agreed to treat with the patricians. It was decided that existing debts should be cancelled, and that all debtors in bondage should be restored to freedom. It was necessary, however, to provide security for the future, and the plebeians therefore insisted that two of their own number should be elected annually, to whom the plebeians might appeal for assistance against the decisions of the patrician magistrates. These officers were called tribunes of the plebs, their persons were declared sacred and inviolate, they were never to quit the city during their year of office, and their houses were to remain open day and night, that all who were in need of help might apply to them. Their number was soon afterward increased to five, and at a later time to ten. They gradually gained more and more power, and obtained the right of putting a veto upon any public business. At the sacred mount the plebeians also obtained the privilege of having two ediles of their order appointed. These officers had at a later time the care of the public buildings and roads, and the superintendence of the police of the city. Emboldened by this success, the plebeians now demanded a share in the public land, and in this they found an unexpected supporter among the patricians themselves. Esti, Cassius, one of the most distinguished men in the state, who had formed the league between the Romans, Latins, and Hernicans, brought forward in his third consulship a law by which a portion of the public land was to be divided among the plebeians B.C. 486. This was the first agrarian law mentioned in Roman history. It must be recollected that all the agrarian laws dealt only with the public land, and never touched the property of private persons. Notwithstanding the violent opposition of the patricians, the law was passed, but it was never carried into execution, and the patricians soon revenged themselves upon its author. In the following year he was accused of aiming at the kinly power, and condemned to death. He was scourged and beheaded, and his house raised to the ground. We now turn to the external history of Rome. Under the kings Rome had risen to a superiority over her neighbors, and had extended her dominion over the southern part of Etruria and the greater part of Latium. The early history of the Republic presents a very different spectacle. For the next 100 years she is engaged in a difficult and often dubious struggle with the Etruscans on the one hand, and the Volscians and Equians on the other. It would be unprofitable to relate the details of these petty campaigns, but there are three celebrated legends connected with them which must not be passed over. 1. Siorioleanus and the Violescians, B.C. 488. C. Marcius, surnamed Coriolanus, from his valor at the capture of the Latin town of Corioli was a brave but haughty patrician youth. He was hated by the plebeians, who refused him the consulship. 
this inflamed him with anger, and accordingly, when the city was suffering from famine, and a present of corn came from Sicily, Coriolanus advised the Senate not to distribute it among the plebeians unless they gave up their tribunes. Such insolence enraged the plebeians, who would have torn him to pieces on the spot had not the tribunes summoned him before the commission of the tribes. Coriolanus himself breathed nothing but defiance, and his kinsmen and friends interceded for him in vain. He was condemned to exile. He now turned his steps to Antium, the capital of the Volscians, and offered to lead them against Rome. Atius Tullius, king of the Volscians, persuaded his countrymen to appoint Coriolanus their general. Nothing could check his victorious progress, town after town fell before him, and he advanced within five miles of the city, ravaging the lands of the plebeians, but sparing those of the patricians. The city was filled with despair. The ten first men in the senate were sent in hopes of moving his compassion, but they were received with the utmost sternness, and told that the city must submit to his absolute will. Next day the pontiffs, augurs, flamens, and all the priests, came in their robes of office, and in vain prayed him to spare the city. All seemed lost, but Rome was saved by her women. Next morning the noblest matrons, headed by Vittoria, the aged mother of Corolanus, and by his wife Volumnia, holding her little children by the hand, came to his tent. Their lamentations turned him from his purpose. Mother, he said, bursting into tears, thou hast saved Rome, but lost thy son. He then led the Volscians home, but they put him to death because he had spared Rome. Others relate that he lived among the Volscians to a great age, and was often heard to say that none but an old man can feel how wretched it is to live in a foreign land. 2. The Fabii Generals and the Viandianes. B.C. 477. The Fabii were one of the most powerful of the patrician houses. For seven successive years one of the consuls was always a Fabius. The Fabii had been among the leading opponents of the agrarian law, and Caso Fabius had taken an active part in obtaining the condemnation of Espy. Cassius. But shortly afterward we find the same Caso the advocate of the popular rights and proposing that the agrarian law of Cassius should be carried into effect. He was supported in his new views by his powerful house, though the reasons for their change of opinion we do not know. But the Fabii made no impression upon the great body of the patricians, and only earned for themselves the hearty hatred of their order. Finding that they could no longer live in peace at Rome, they determined to leave the city, and found a separate settlement, where they might still be full to their native land. One of the most formidable enemies of the Republic was the Etruscan city of Vi, situated about twelve miles from Rome. Accordingly, the Fabian house, consisting of 306 males of full age, accompanied by their wives and children, clients and dependents, marched out of Rome by the right-hand arch of the Carmental Gate, and proceeded straight to the Cremera, a river which flows into the Tiber below Vi. On the Cremera they established a fortified camp, and, sallying thence, they laid waste the Viandine territory. For two years they sustained the whole weight of the Viandine war, and all the attempts of the Viandines to dislodge them proved in vain. But at length they were enticed into an ambuscade, and were all slain. The settlement was destroyed, and no one of the house survived except a boy who had been left behind at Rome, and who became the ancestor of the Fabii. Afterward so celebrated in Roman history, the Fabii were sacrificed to the hatred of the patricians, for the consul Timonines was encamped a short way off at the time, and he did nothing to save them. 3. Cian Cian and the Aequiuians, B.C. 458. 
The Equians in their numerous attacks upon the Roman territory generally occupied Mount Alginus, which formed a part of the group of the Alban Hills in Latium. It was accordingly upon this mount that the battles between the Romans and Equians most frequently took place. In the year 458 BC the Roman consul Alminices was defeated on the Alginus, and surrounded in his camp, five horsemen, who made their escape before the Romans were completely encompassed, brought the tidings to Rome. The Senate forthwith appointed El Cincinnatus dictator. El Cincinnatus was one of the heroes of old Roman story. When the deputies of the Senate came to him to announce his elevation to the dictatorship they found him driving a plow, and clad only in his tunic or shirt. They bade him clothe himself, that he might hear the commands of the Senate. He put on his toga, which his wife Rasilia brought him. The deputies then told him of the peril of the Roman army, and that he had been made dictator. The next morning, before daybreak, he appeared in the forum, and ordered all the men of military age to meet him in the evening in the field of Mars, with food for five days, and each with twelve stakes. His orders were obeyed, and with such speed did he march, that by midnight he reached Mount Alginus, placing his men around the Equian camp. He told them to raise the war cry, and at the same time to begin digging a trench and raising a mound, on the top of which the stakes were to be driven in. The other Roman army, which was shut in hearing the war cry, burst forth from their camp, and fought with the Equians all night. The dictator's troops thus worked without interruption, and completed the entrenchment by the morning. The Equians found themselves hemmed in between the two armies, and were forced to surrender. The dictator made them pass under the yoke, which was formed by two spears fixed upright in the ground, while a third was fastened across them. Cincinnatus entered Rome in triumph only 24 hours after he had quitted it. Having thus saved a whole Roman army from destruction, in reading the wars of the early Republic, it is important to recollect the league formed by Sporis Gesius, the offer of the agrarian law between the Romans, Latins, and Hernicans. This league, to which allusion has been already made, was of the most intimate kind, and the armies of the three states fought by each other's sides. It was by means of this league that the Equians and Volscians were kept in check, for they were two of the most warlike nations in Italy and would have been more than a match for the unsupported arms of Rome. Footnote 16, the tribunes were originally elected at the commission of the centuries, where the influence of the patricians was predominant, but by the Publilian law, proposed by the tribune Publilius Volero, and pass ABC 471, the election was transferred to the commission of the tribes, by which means the plebeians obtained the uncontrolled election of their own officers. Chapter V the DACNVIRADI B.C. 451-449. From the agrarian law of Espy, Cassius to the appointment of the Decembers was a period of more than thirty years. During the whole of this time the struggle between the patricians and the plebeians was increasing. The latter constantly demanded, and the former as firmly refused, the execution of the agrarian law of Cassius. But, though the plebeians failed in obtaining this object, they nevertheless made steady progress in gaining for themselves a more important position in the city. In B.C. 471 the Publilian Law was carried, by which the election of the tribunes and plebeian ediles was transferred from the commission of the centuries to those of the tribes. From this time the commission of the tribes may be regarded as one of the political assemblies of the state, ranking with those of the centuries and the curies, but the patricians still retained exclusive possession of the administrative and judicial powers, and there were no written laws to limit their authority and to regulate their decisions. Under these circumstances, the Tribune C. Tarantilles Arsa proposed, in B.C. 462, 
that a commission of ten men December I should be appointed to draw up a code of laws, by which a check might be put to the arbitrary power of the patrician magistrates. This proposition, as might have been expected, met with the most vehement opposition from the patricians, but the plebeians were firm, and for five successive years the same tribunes were re-elected. It was during this struggle that an attempt was made upon the capital by Herodonis, a Sabine chief, with a band of outlaws and slaves. It was a turbulent period, and the patricians had recourse even to assassination. At length, after a struggle of eight years, a compromise was effected, and it was arranged that three commissioners triumviri were to be sent into Greece to collect information respecting the laws of Solon at Athens, as well as of the other Greek states. After an absence of two years the three commissioners returned to Rome B.C. 452, and it was now resolved that a council of ten, or Decembers, should be appointed to draw up a code of laws, and, at the same time, to carry on the government and administer justice. All the other magistrates were obliged to abdicate, and no exception was made even in favor of the tribunes. The Decembers were thus entrusted with supreme power in the state. They entered upon their office at the beginning of B.C. 451. They were all patricians. At their head stood Apius Claudius Antigenusus, who had been already appointed consuls for the year. They discharged the duties of their office with diligence, and dispensed justice with impartiality. Each administered the government day by day in succession, and the fasces were carried only before the one who presided for the day. They drew up a coat of ten tables, in which equal justice was dealt out to both orders. The ten tables received the sanction of the commission of the centuries, and thus became law. On the expiration of their year of office all parties were so well satisfied with the manner in which the Decembers had discharged their duties that it was resolved to continue the same form of government for another year, more especially as some of them said that their work was not finished. A new council of ten was accordingly elected, of whom the pious Claudius alone belonged to the former body. He had so carefully concealed his pride and ambition during the previous year that he had been the most popular member of the council, and the patricians, to prevent his appointment for another year, had ordered him to preside at the commission for the elections, thinking that he would not receive votes for himself. But Apius set such scruples at defiance, and not only returned himself as elected, but took care that his nine colleagues should be subservient to his views. He now threw off the mask he had hitherto worn and acted as the tyrant of Rome. Each December was attended by twelve lictors, who earned the fasces with the axes in them, so that one hundred twenty lictors were seen in the city instead of twelve. The Senate was rarely summoned, no one was now safe, and many of the leading men quitted Rome. Two new tables were added to the code, making twelve in all, but these new laws were of the most oppressive kind, and confirmed the patricians in their most odious privileges. When the year came to a close the Decembers neither resigned nor held commissia for the election of successors, but continued to hold their power in defiance of the Senate and of the people. Next year B.C. 449 the Sabines and Equians invaded the Roman territory, and two armies were dispatched against them, commanded by some of the Decembers. Apires remained at Rome to administer justice, but the soldiers fought with no spirit under the command of men whom they detested and two acts of outrageous tyranny caused them to turn their arms against their hated masters. In the army fighting against the Sabines was a centurion named Elsicines Dentatus, the bravest of the brave. He had fought in 120 battles, he had slain eight of the enemy in single combat, had received 40 wounds. All in front, he had accompanied the triumphs of nine generals, and had war crowns and other rewards innumerable. 
as tribune of the plebs four years before. He had taken an active part in opposing the patricians, and was now suspected of plotting against the Decembers. His death was accordingly resolved on, and he was sent with a company of soldiers as if to reconnoiter the enemy's position, but in a lonely spot they fell upon him and slew him, though not until he had destroyed most of the traitors. His comrades, who were told that he had fallen in an ambush of the enemy, discovered the foul treachery that had been practiced when they saw him surrounded by Roman soldiers who had evidently been slain by him. The Decembers prevented an immediate outbreak only by burying dentatus with great pomp, but the troops were ready to arise in open mutiny upon the first provocation. In the other army sent against the Equians there was a well-known centurion named Virginius. He had a beautiful daughter, betrothed to Elysilis, an eminent leader of the plebeian order. The maiden had attracted the notice of the December Pius Claudius. He at first tried bribes and allurements, but when these failed he had recourse to an outrageous act of tyranny. One morning, as Virginia, attended by her nurse, was on the way to her school, which was in one of the booths surrounding the forum, M. Claudius, a client of Apius, laid hold of the damsel and claimed her as his slave. The cry of the nurse for help brought a crowd around them, and all parties went before the December. In his presence Marcus repeated the tale he had learnt, asserting that Virginia was the child of one of his female slaves, and had been imposed upon Virginius by his wife, who was childless. He farther stated that he would prove this to Virginius as soon as he returned to Rome, and he demanded that the girl should meantime be handed over to his custody. Apius, fearing a riot, said that he would let the cause stand over till the next day, but that then, whether her father appeared or not, he should know how to maintain the laws. Straightway two friends of the family made all haste to the camp, which they reached the same evening. Virginius immediately obtained leave of absence and was already on his way to Rome, when the messenger of Apius arrived, instructing his colleagues to detain him. Early next morning Virginius and his daughter came into the forum with their garments rent. The father appealed to the people for aid, and the women in their company sobbed aloud, but, intent upon the gratification of his passions, Apius cared not for the misery of the father and the girl, and hastened to give sentence, by which he consigned the maiden to his client, Apius who had brought with him a large body of patricians and their clients, ordered his lictors to disperse the mob. The people drew back, leaving Virginius and his daughter alone before the judgment seat. All help was gone. The unhappy father then prayed the December to be allowed to speak one word to the nurse in his daughter's hearing, in order to ascertain whether she was really his daughter. The request was granted. Virginius drew them both aside, and, snatching up a butcher's knife from one of the stalls, plunged it into his daughter's breast, exclaiming, There is no way but this to keep thee free. In vain did Apius call out to stop him. The crowd made way for him, and, holding his bloody knife on high, he rushed to the gate of the city and hastened to the army. His comrades espoused his cause, expelled their commanders, and marched toward Rome. They were soon joined by the other army, to whom the Mitores and Isilis had carried the tidings. The plebeians in the city flocked to them and they all resolved to retire once more to the sacred mount. The second secession extorted from the patricians the second great charter of the plebeian rights. The patricians compelled the Decembers to resign, and sent Alvaris and Amhorishis, two of the most eminent men of their order, to negotiate with the plebeians. It was finally agreed that the tribunes should be restored, that the authority of the Comitia Tributa should be recognized and that the right of appeal to the people against the power of the supreme magistrates should be confirmed.
the plebeians now returned to the city, and elected, for the first time, ten tribunes instead of five, a number which remained and changed down to the latest times. Virginius, Isilis, and Numitores were among the new tribunes. Two consuls were elected in place of the Decembers, and the choice of the Comitia Centuriata naturally fell upon Glories and Horatius. The new consuls now redeemed their promises to the plebeians by bringing forward the laws which are called after them, the Valerian and Horatian laws. These celebrated laws enacted, 1. That every Roman citizen should have the right of appeal against the sentence of the supreme magistrate. This was, in fact, a solemn confirmation of the old law of Valeris Publicola, passed in the first year of the Republic. It was enacted again a third time in B.C. 300, on the proposal of M. Valeris, the consul. These repeated enactments gave a still farther sanction to the law. In the same way the Great Charter of England was ratified several times. 2. That the plebiscite, or resolutions passed by the plebeians in the Comitia Tribute, should have the force of laws, and should be binding alike upon patricians and plebeians. 3. That the persons of the tribunes, ediles, and other plebeian magistrates should be sacred, and whoever injured them should be sold as a slave. Virginius now accused a pious Claudius, who was thrown into prison to await his trial, but the proud patrician, seeing that his condemnation was certain, put an end to his own life. Apius, another of the Decembers, and the personal friend of Apius, was condemned and executed. The other Decembers were allowed to go into exile, but they were all declared guilty, and their property confiscated to the state. The Twelve Tables were always regarded as the foundation of the Roman law and long continued to be held in the highest estimation, but they probably did little more than fix in a written form a large body of customary law, though even this was a benefit to the plebeians, as they were no longer subject to the arbitrary decisions of the patrician magistrates. The patricians still retained their exclusive privileges, and the eleventh table even gave the sanction of law to the old custom which prohibited all intermarriage connubium between the two orders. Chapter VI from the DACNVIRAD to the capture of Rome by the Gauls, BC 448-390. The efforts of the leaders of the plebeians were now directed to two subjects, the removal of the prohibition of intermarriage between the two orders, and the opening of the consulship to their own order. They attained the first object for years after the Decemvirate by the Lex Canuilia, proposed by Canuilius, one of the tribunes BC 445, but they did not carry this law without a third secession in which they occupied the Janiculum. At the same time a compromise was effected with respect to the consulship. The patricians agreed that the supreme power in the state should be entrusted to new officers bearing the title of military tribunes with consular power, who might be chosen equally from patricians and plebeians. Their number varied in different years from 3 to 6. In B.C. 444 three military tribunes were nominated for the first time. In the following year 443 two new magistrates called censors, were appointed, they were always to be chosen from the patricians, and the reason of the institution clearly was to deprive the military tribunes of some of the most important functions, which had been formerly discharged by the consuls, the censors originally held office for a period of five years, which was called a lustrum, but their tenure was limited to eighteen months, as early as ten years after its institution B.C. 443, by a law of the dictator Mamurquasimilis though they continued to be appointed only once in five years, though the military tribunes could from their first institution be chosen from either order. Yet such was the influence of the patricians in the commission of the centuries that it was not till B.C. 400, 
or nearly 40 years afterward, that any plebeians were actually elected. In B.C. 421 the quaestorship was also thrown open to them. The quaestors were the paymasters of the state, and as the censors had to fill up vacancies in the Senate from those who had held the office of quaestor, the plebeians thus became eligible for the Senate. During these struggles between the two orders an event took place which is frequently referred to by later writers. In the year 440 B.C. there was a great famine at Rome. Esti, Molis, one of the richest of the plebeian knights, expended his fortune in buying up corn, which he sold to the poor at a small price, or distributed among them gratuitously. The patricians thought, or pretended to think, that he was aiming at kindly power, and in the following year 439 the aged Quintus Cincinnatus, who had saved the Roman army on Mount Algidus, was appointed dictator. He nominated Caesar Villizahala his master of the horse. During the night the capital and all the strong posts were garrisoned by the patricians, and in the morning Cincinnatus appeared in the forum with a strong force, and summoned Molis to appear before his tribunal. But seeing the fate which awaited him, he refused to go. Whereupon Ahala rushed into the crowd and struck him dead upon the spot. His property was confiscated, and his house was leveled to the ground. The deed of Ahala is frequently mentioned by Cicero and other writers in terms of the highest admiration, but it was regarded by the plebeians at the time as an act of murder. Ahala was brought to trial, and only escaped condemnation by a voluntary exile. In their foreign wars the Romans continued to be successful, and, aided by their allies the Latins and Hernicans, they made steady progress in driving back their old enemies the Volscians and Equians. About this time they planted several colonies in the districts which they conquered. These Roman colonies differed widely from those of ancient Greece and of modern Europe. They were of the nature of garrisons established in conquered towns, and served both to strengthen and extend the power of Rome. The colonists received a portion of the conquered territory, and lived as a ruling class among the old inhabitants, who retained the use of the land. The Romans now renewed their wars with the Etruscans, and the capture of the important city of Veii was the first decisive advantage gained by the Republic. The hero of this period was Camillus, who stands out prominently as the greatest general of the infant Republic, who saved Rome from the Gauls, and whom later ages honored as a second Romulus. Veii, however, was only